Well, some of you have been asking, too, whether we'll continue in the study of, of the book of Revelation, uh, considering that Pastor John uh, has uh, decided to take that up as well. And I was uh, sitting in the service last Sunday when he announced that, and uh, my wife immediately wrote a note to me saying, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, give me some time as I slowly slouch into underneath, or underneath the pews and try and figure out what to do. Uh, but I think we will continue, and, and as I've said before, what I want to do is actually go through the first three chapters now, uh, and then leave off the, the book of Revelation for a while, when, whenever we get to the end of chapter uh, three, and, and uh, then go back to something else. So we're not going to go through the whole book of Revelation, which I hope Pastor John does, very much a, a needed book. But one of the things that encouraged me on this was, <laughs> was uh, yesterday, uh, I looked on Twitter, and this is what was trending uh, and understandably, Israel, World War III, the book of Revelation, and Hamas. Uh, very much indicating that uh, there's a lot of, obviously, concern about what's going on in our world, wars and rumors of wars. And, of course, you have in response to this, some Christians, as I saw on social media, who right away mocked all of those who were going to the book of Revelation. And I think that's indicative of all the, the, the reasons why people are so confused, is that often the response when these questions about what God's plan is for the future, when those are, are raised, people have an aversion to the book of Revelation and so try to tell Christians not to go there. And that only contributes to greater ignorance and a lack of confidence, and a lack of understanding for the right way to live in the present moment. We're going to get into that as we uh, get into this study. What we want to do is get into the introduction to Revelation this morning and look at the first three verses, which set the tone for the entire book. So very important, and we're going to entitle this, A Book Written for You. A book written for you, our study of these first three verses of chapter 1. As I was preparing, I came across a, a, a statement by one of the commentators. His name is uh, Joseph Seiss, a Lutheran who was a dispensationalist. And he explained the reason why he approached the exposition of the book of Revelation in the way that he did. And he made a statement which I thought was so well articulated about why we must look to this book, why we must study it, why we must be open to examining it and applying it to our lives. And this is, this is what he said, so fitting. He said this, quote, It has been upon my mind and in my heart for a long time to deliver a series of special discourses upon this remarkable portion of the Holy Scriptures not from a conceit of superior wisdom or spiritual gifts, not with the vain ambition of making all mysteries plain, nor yet out of mere curious desire to pry into the things of the future, but out of solemn reverence for all that God has caused to be written for our learning, with a view conscientiously to declare the whole counsel of God, and with an earnest desire to secure for myself and those who hear me, that special benediction which is pronounced upon them that read, hear, and keep what is written in this prophecy. End quote. I think this summarizes well even 
what I think in, in, in terms of what I need for my own life, the desire for this blessedness that is going to be referred to in verse 3, and in general, a better understanding of the imminence and what that means, the imminence of the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how that is to impact my own lifestyle, my own living today, and how it is to impact yours as well. When we look at the introduction, these first three verses, this is what we find. The Apostle John writes these words, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he said and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now when we go through this introduction this morning, we're going to break this up into three sections. We're going to see in verse 1 a description of the content of the book. Verse 1 of chapter 1, the content of the book Verse 2 is going to focus our attention on the credibility of the book. And then in verse 3, we will see the consequence of the book. What consequence, a study and application of this book in our lives today, what consequence that will have in our walk with the Lord. As I've said already, these three verses serve as what we could call, it would be in, in informal terms, the superscript to a book like this. We could call it a, perhaps a preface. And it's part of a longer section here that runs all the way to the end of verse 8, which is the book's prologue, the things that, uh, that are part of a book of this nature that introduce the book, introduce the, uh, the writer, introduce the recipients and the purpose of the book and so on and so forth. And the major body of the book really only begins in chapter 1, verse 9. But we're going to focus on this section of this prologue, this superscript or this preface. And as I said, first of all, we need to, to study, dig down deep into the content of this book that is described in verse 1. The content of the book in verse 1. Here John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Now, the very first words of this very first verse, uh, these words that are the opening phrase of this sentence, really serve as the book's title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the issue that immediately is raised here, right off the bat, is the very first word in the Greek, the very first word that begins this entire book. It's the word apocalypsis, which we put into English as apocalypse. Now, just from a very initial survey, this word, apocalypse, if we speak it in the English, basically means an unveiling. 
So the very first word of this book is the word unveiling. An or the unveiling. Now, what has happened, however, is that this, this word has become, this very first word has become the source of a lot of debate. It's only found here in the book of Revelation, never found anywhere else in the book of Revelation, but this very first word, as we get into this book, causes a whole lot of disagreement, particularly in more recent times. In more recent times, many scholars today make the argument that on the basis of this word, we are to read everything after it as we would the genre of literature called Jewish apocalyptic. Now, perhaps you've even heard of that, and I want to get into this just a little bit because this is a common approach to the book of Revelation today, to treat it as apocalyptic, as Jewish apocalyptic literature. So I want to get into it a little bit to give you some, some information on this and also to explain why we don't take that approach. Now, Jewish apocalyptic literature flourished in Jewish circles from about 200 BC to about the time of John, to 100 AD. And we find extant copies or remains of this kind of literature in what some of you are familiar with, especially if you uh, have Roman Catholic backgrounds. It's in what is called the pseudepigrapha. We find Jewish apocalyptic literature in the pseudepigrapha. Now, pseudepigrapha refers to literature from that time, religious literature connected to Jewish writers. It refers to them as as, as pseudepigrapha because these are works that are falsely attributed to different biblical patriarchs and prophets. In other words, you have books like the Book of Enoch, the Assumption of Moses, the Apocalypse of Abraham, the Apocalypse of Ezra, and so on and so forth. There's quite a few. And we call these pseudepigrapha because in the book itself, it's very evident that the writer is not who it says it is. And so people took up the pen and they wrote these works from the standpoint of these different patriarchs, of these different prophets, and pretended that these works came from them. That is a very dominant characteristic of pseudepigraphical literature. It's from pseudo, which means false, falsely written, falsely attributed. Moreover, we can come up with these these characteristics of Jewish apocalyptic literature. First of all, it's characterized by an extensive use of symbolism. If you go to those books in the pseudepigrapha, you will see a lot of symbols, a lot of symbolism, and you will see that the mode through which the claim is made that revelation was received was through all of these visions. Moreover, in the pseudepigraphical literature, you will have a focus on the end of the age, you will have these descriptions of a transcendent conflict between God and Satan, between angels and demons. That's a major focus of this kind of literature, the apocalyptic literature. You also have an emphasis in apocalyptic literature that the spiritual world 
is far more influential in the material world than the material world is itself. So the emphasis in this kind of literature is that really what is, what is causing everything that we see happening is not actual uh, material forces. It's actually coming from the spiritual world, the, the realm beyond ours. And also, what is very dominant within Jewish apocalyptic literature is the idea that there is nothing that we can do, nothing that the righteous can do to, do, to, to affect the outcome of history in any kind of way. You can also say that what's uh, characteristic of Jewish apocalyptic literature is that because of that, there's really no moral imperatives that are given in Jewish apocalyptic literature. It's almost a kind of resignation and just realizing that what is happening in the heavens is what is going to happen to us. There's nothing for us to do other than to observe. Mainly, we could say this, Jewish apocalyptic literature, because of its claims to be written by these prophets and these patriarchs such as Moses and Abraham and Enoch, it's ahistorical. It doesn't describe actual historical events. Moreover, we call it pseudo-predictive, that it really isn't given in any sense of providing prophecy of what God will do in the future. It is about this transcendent realm, this drama that is playing itself out in the heavens And we are just to observe and take the lessons from that. But it has no future history that is revealed within it. But here's the problem. The book of Revelation, although it does carry some of those same features, it differs from Jewish apocalyptic literature in some very important ways. First of all, and this is important, Revelation is not pseudonymous. It is not falsely attributed. John, it's the, the writer of this book, identifies himself four times, both in the beginning to set the tone as well as at the end. He is responsible from 1 verse 1 to 22 uh, verse 21. He is the writer, and this is important because in apocalyptic literature, Everything was so transcendent and detached from any history that there was no reasonable attachment even to a known historical figure who contributed to it. It was all all falsely described, whereas John does not approach the book in that manner. Secondly, unlike Jewish apocalyptic, Revelation does include, as we will see, moral imperatives that despite the fact that God does have, as we will see, a plan in place that cannot be altered, there are moral imperatives that we are to take and apply to everyday life, to real situations. Thirdly, Revelation has various styles of literature. It is not just prophetic, but there are letters written in it. There are hymns that are in it. There is a a variation of kinds of genres that we find within its pages. Moreover, Revelation is not ahistorical. It speaks truly of the first advent of Christ. 
And it doesn't treat that as if it was just a myth. It refers also to the historical circumstances of John, as well as the historical circumstances of seven known churches. It is not just a drama being played out in the heavens. And finally, and really importantly, Revelation explicitly identifies itself as prophecy. It's going to do this several times, again, in the beginning and in the end. It will explicitly say that the words of this book are prophecy, tying it not to Jewish apocalyptic, but rather to the Old Testament prophetic books. Now let's come back to that word then, apocalypsis, and, or apocalypse, and, and let's look at it a little bit differently than how it is often construed today. If we look at the term apocalypse, we can understand it just in its normal sense as referring to an uncovering or a disclosure. It's actually made up of two words, apa and kalupsis. Apa means away from whereas kalupsis refers to a covering, a veil. So if you put those two words together, the idea is it's a removal of the veil. And so that's figuratively speaking of the removal of something that, that was keeping information hidden. And so we treat it or we define it as a disclosure, a, a, a revelation, It is an uncovering of what was previously a mystery and inaccessible and unknowable to humanity, which is now being made known. It's a removal of the veil. And in fact, when we do look at this very term used elsewhere in the New Testament, we find that previous to John, As part of the growing church's life, they began to use this term specifically to refer to eschatological events. Notice, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. We have the term used in that context, and then that statement where Paul is introducing that letter to the Corinthian church, and he talks about his ministry, and he says this, "...so that you are not lacking in any gift..." awaiting eagerly the apocalypse, awaiting eagerly the revelation, the unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very clearly speaking there of of the anticipation that Christians are to have as they exercise their spiritual gifts, their their knowledge and all that God has done in their lives, that, that they are to do that while they are waiting for that unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ. We could look at a text like 1 Peter, and it's several times used this way. In fact, 1 Peter 1, verse 7, 1 Peter 1, 13, chapter 4, verse 13. But in 1, verse 7, he says this. He says, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, than precious gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the apocalypse. At, as we have it translated in our Bibles, rightly, at the revelation or the disclosure of Jesus Christ. When he will appear and 
when the veil will be taken away and we will see Jesus in His glorious state. Now coming back then to our verse here, verse 1 of chapter 1, we then are faced with the question, what then is disclosed? The revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. What is this referring to? It's a, a question that is dis- d- debated and discussed and among interpreters. And we see in that phrase that follows, of Jesus Christ, that this unveiling certainly has to do with Jesus Christ. It is connected with him. And some scholars will immediately say, and and certainly this is part of it, they will say this all has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. That what this book is about, and and certainly we don't disagree with this, but, but the argument will be made that what this book is about is about the fact that Jesus is known to us in the Gospels, through or in his humanity, in the lowliness of his first advent, as he came to obey the will of his Father, to live that perfect life, to be obedient, to be a a servant, and then to give his life as a ransom. And so we know him in that humble estate. But we all know, even as Paul talked about and Peter talked about at a time is coming, when the veil will be removed and Jesus Christ will be seen in that awesome glory that will cause all of us to fall on our faces. That we will see him as we even heard this morning in that vision of verses 9 to 20 in his glory and that this is what is specifically referenced here. And certainly there is a lot to that, but there is more to it. What we read of in this section is not only about the person of Jesus Christ, but also much more that is associated with him. So he is certainly the center of all the attention. But when we read that this is a disclosure of Jesus Christ, it is a disclosure of his glory, but of also of all the attendant details that, uh, that, that, that take place as that unveiling of his glory is made manifest. And so in this sense, when we see that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, we see that he is the agent of this revelation. It has been, as we see in this text, it has been given to him by God the Father. And this revelation, this disclosure of of knowledge is given to him so that he would show it to others. He is the agent of the revelation of the content of this book. As we look further in verse 1, we see that He has been given this revelation by God the Father to show to his bondservants. And that speaks of the recipients, those for whom this disclosure is intended. He calls them bondservants here. Of course, that's our English translation. But the literal translation is the word slaves. It's the word slaves. Now, who are they? Who are these slaves? Well, John is going to refer to himself as a slave. You look right at the end of verse 1, 
to his bondservant John. So we know at the very least John is included in this. He is one of these slaves. But we see further that in verse 4, for example, that this was written by John to the seven churches. In other words, it is a reference to believers. This disclosure has been given by God the Father to Jesus Christ, who then becomes the agent of this knowledge to pass on to the ultimate uh, audience, the target audience, and that is believers. It doesn't say to show to his professors or to the academics or to the scholars. This knowledge was given to Jesus to show to his own followers, his slaves, true believers. This is, as we will see even more as we go through, this is a book for us. We see the recipients of this disclosure. We also see the contents of it more explicitly described in the, in the clause that follows. The things which must soon take place. It is a disclosure which God gave to Jesus for him to give to his slaves, his believers. It is a disclosure of the things which must soon take place. Now, when we see that clause, it may not strike you, but the, the language of it, if you knew Greek, and you knew your Old Testament very, very well, it would immediately take you back to Daniel. It is language that, in, that takes us all the way back to Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this statue. And this statue has multiple levels, head of gold, and then it goes all the way down to the, the feet of of clay and, 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 and iron, and, and in that chapter of Daniel chapter 2, specifically in verses 28 and 29, as, and as, as well stated in chapter 2, verse 45, you have the same language used. Let me just read Daniel 2, 28 to 29 here, where this is what is written. However, Daniel says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar, and here's the language, what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while you were on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Again, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. 
John is making, as he is moved by the Holy Spirit, a direct reference to the fact that he is continuing the same kind of prophecy that was revealed back in the book of Daniel about the things which must take place. In fact, we find this this statement will be used again, specifically in chapter 4, verse 1, as he gets past the letters to the churches, and now the description of things which will take place, the things which must soon take place, are, 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 are starting to be described in, beginning in chapter 4. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And then when we get to chapter 22, verse 6, right at the end of the book, in the conclusion, we read this in 22, 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So we see it in Daniel. John picks it up in his introduction. And then he uses it to introduce the prophetic portion of the book in chapter 4, verse 1. And then the same phraseology ends the book in chapter 22. This is a a definite attempt, a definite signal that he is picking up some of the same themes introduced by the prophet Daniel about the end of the days. In particular, in chapter 2 of Daniel, we see in that chapter, if we had time to read it, that it is all about the establishment here on earth of the Messiah's kingdom. John picks up that language and wants us to realize he is going to provide us now in this book with fresh, new, more specific details. And what we have to take from this is reflected not so much in the English, although it's there in the English, but it certainly is there in the Greek. It ha- it's the idea of determination, the things which must take place. In the original, it emphasizes absolute necessity. It must take place. God has set the future in place already. And he has a plan for it that is utterly unbreakable, that nothing can interfere. And listen, that's going to be hope. That's going to be hope for the churches that John will address in these chapters. It's going to be hope in what way? In the, in the realization that no matter what evil men will do here on this earth, no matter the circumstances, we know that the plan is going exactly according to the decree of the Sovereign One. He is in control, and what we see in terms of wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, all those kinds of things are not out of his plan. One writer puts it this way, history is not a haphazard sequence of unrelated events, but a divinely decreed ordering of that which must take place. 
It is a logical and moral necessity arising from the nature of God and the revelation of his purpose in creation and redemption. Reminds us even of the wording that begins chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And that is what is emphasized in these opening verses. This is the content of the book. Just a few more thoughts here on verse 1 as as, as John continues to describe the contents and how they were delivered, he refers to it being sent and communicated by his angel. This is an interesting reference. There is, in the book of Revelation, from time to time, uh, the reference to angels and to an angel in particular, especially when we get to the end, again, going back to, to 22 verse 6, we read that these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of His Spirit, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Now certainly the angel, and there are other angels as well, are never to be the focus of our attention. You can see even in the book that they don't want to be the focus of man's curiosity, nor his affections. However, we must recognize that in the revelation of the Word of God, not just the book of Revelation, but other sections as well. In the, in the mystery of God, he has used angels to be special messengers to bring knowledge to the prophets, particularly knowledge that does involve visions. But it doesn't end with the angel. We see right at the end the reference to the, to the scribe to the recorder of the things which must soon take place. And he is identified as his slave, John. This is the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you can understand then, one who spent so much time with the Lord Jesus During his first advent, as Jesus washed feet, healed the sick, tended to the downhearted, that John had in his memory this this portrait of the Son of Man who was meek and humble. And, And you read even of this kind of humility in 1 John chapter 1, which the Apostle John also writes, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we have these words as John reflects on the incarnation and the first advent of Jesus Christ. John writes, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This writer was the disciple whom Jesus loved. This writer was the one 
who spent so much time with this Messiah that he is specially chosen at the end of the apostolic era, the final remaining apostle, to be the one to inscripturate this very special knowledge related to the return of that Messiah and all the events surrounding it. He is the privileged one, and we can understand as he loved his Messiah, as he loved Jesus so much, remembering undoubtedly even on the island of Patmos as he's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, that when he sees the glorified Jesus appear to him, he looks different now than Jesus in his humble servanthood. And so he falls on his face like a dead man. He, out of all of those apostles, knew this one well. And yet, even he could not possibly imagine until seeing with his own eyes the glory of this resurrected and returning Savior and Lord. Well, that's the content of the book. Let's now look at the credibility of the book. There's not as many details now in verses 2 and 3, but they still warrant our attention. The credibility of the book is, is reflected in these words, words in verse 2. As John continues, he writes, Of himself, the slave of Jesus, he writes, Who testified to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, what's important to realize here is that the language of testimony, he he testified, emphasizes a very important element. This is faithful witness. He is emphasizing, John is right here, that everything that now is going to follow was a faithful and true and accurate representation of the knowledge that John received to impart to others. It's not as if John in these visions became a madman and could not write properly and so what we have left for us is some kind of enigma of a man who is out of his mind. Instead, at the very beginning, and this is important to catch, John wants us to understand that these very words are exactly the words that are to be passed on that Jesus has given to him to give to believers. What he writes, what will be heard, what will be read is an accurate recording, the perfect recording for what we could handle related to the events that are to come. Let's look at that a little bit further. John says, who testified to, number one, the word of God. In other words, this book finds its source in God himself. Second, it is equated with the testimony of Jesus. We looked at that already. God gave this knowledge to Jesus, who becomes the great agent of revelation. And so John testifies that he recorded accurately the very testimony of Jesus Christ. And third, he says that what he wrote, he he, he testifies that it is an accurate rendering of all that he saw. Now, here's an important point to capture here. 
One of the ways that the book of Revelation is often dismissed is that it's all just visions. And certainly, when you see something, you walk out even today, and and you'll see something, and see something take place on Roscoe Boulevard. There can be just a, a normal event, and you can somewhat interpret that regularly, faithfully, but if there's something that is fantastic that happens out there, and you see it, how do you describe that? How do you possibly describe that? I mean, I was just thinking about my eldest daughter giving birth and trying to remember what that was like holding a a newborn, your own newborn baby. How can you put that into words? It defies being textualized. And so with the book of Revelation, many approach it and say, that's the same way. It's just visions. You can't make heads or tails of it because it's, it's vision. But here's what John is emphasizing here as he talks about the credibility of this book. As he's saying, this has been perfectly captured in text. God has not left it in pictures for us to try to interpret Instead, by using as he did the Apostle John, all those visions that he experienced have been faithfully described in a much more tangible way for us in words. As otherworldly as this disclosure was, everything was recorded correctly. And our focus is not to try to recreate some kind of visionary experience in us. No, that happened to John. Our responsibility is to look at the way in which it was recorded in text and to interpret that. So we see here, even looking at verses 1 and 2 altogether, looking at the content of the book and then verse 2, the the credibility of this book, we see this flow of of revelation as it goes from God the Father through Jesus Christ, through his angel, to the slave John, and then to his slaves, believers. This is the target, this special disclosure of end-time knowledge was given for believers. It doesn't remain somewhere in that realm above us somewhere beyond our reach. No, it was given specifically for the believers of the churches of of, of Asia Minor as well as for the entire church age. That leads us now to the the third emphasis made here in this introduction, this superscript to the book, and it's the consequence of the book. We've seen its content, its credibility, now its consequence, and that's in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, as I said, this kind of promise of blessedness is never found in any of the Jewish apocalyptic works. It it is what partially distinguishes the book of Revelation from that kind of literature. And this promise here, given in verse 3, at the end of the superscript, indicates the practical purpose that this book is to have. It isn't just a book for debate. It doesn't remain in the realm of theory. It is to have a practical impact in our lives by bringing us blessedness. I came across an old word in one of the old commentaries. 
It is to bring us felicity. Felicity. It is to bring us blessing. Let's look at it more as as, as we, we go through this verse in closing here. John writes, blessed is he who reads. It begins there with the reader. Now, the reader is singular, and there's a reason for this. In those days, there weren't personal copies of the Bible like we enjoy today. And so, as a member of one of those churches, for example, your only exposure to the Word would come when you'd gather together with the other believers, and there would be someone, uh, the, the minister, the elder, who would read the text. And so first, the blessing is pronounced on the one who reads. And we can see this reference in texts like 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 27, where Paul says about 1 Thessalonians, he adjures them to have the letter read to all the brethren. Colossians 4, 16, he says, When this letter, Colossians, is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says to Timothy in Ephesus, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of the scripture. This traces back to the practice in the Jewish synagogue where the scriptures would be read there as well. And this is where the blessing begins. This word must be read to the congregation. It must be the topic of study and exposition. But it goes from there, the, the blessing does, to those who hear. Now these are in the plural. These were the members of the church. These were the ones who who would assemble together. As they were called out from the world, they would assemble together to hear the ministry of the word. And they had no personal copies of their own. So understand this. God intended that this book be read so that the believers would hear it and they would memorize it. And they would then apply it in their lives. And back in those days, very different from ours today, the ancients had the ability to hear something just a couple of times and it would remain in their memories. Us today, because of our dependency on technology and because of the fact, which is not a bad thing, that we have the scriptures in our hands all the time, very few of us have that discipline left. We don't memorize anything anymore. But that's not how it was back then. One writer, Robert Thomas, says this, because writing materials were expensive and scarce, so were copies of the books. As a rule, one copy per Christian assembly was the best that could be hoped for. Public reading was the only means that rank-and-file Christians had for becoming familiar with the contents of these books. An individual would therefore read aloud for the benefit of the rest of those assembled. It behooved the listeners to pay close attention, a habit in which they had been well-trained. When written resources were were unavailable, the memory had to be keen or else the data were lost. What was to be read? The words of this prophecy. Here, as I've said already, the book identifies its actual genre. It connects it with the prophetic books of the Old Testament. John realizes he is writing inspired scripture. But the blessing isn't ended with either the reading or the hearing. And this is what we are to to grasp here as, as this comes to a close. It is to be contingent upon... The heeding, 
the keeping. Applying what was heard was the condition for this promise to be fully realized. Again, this was not just a book that was to occupy their theoretical thoughts. This was not just a book that was to be discussed in academic circles. It was a book that was to be intensely practical, to have application in everyday living, to inform and impact how they made their decisions, how they lived their lives. And why was this? The answer is found right at the end in verse 3. The reason, the motive for why the words of the prophecy were to be read, heard, and heeded, and why blessing would come from that activity was that the time is near. The time here, the word for time, as a distinct reference to eschatological events. You could trace it in texts like Acts 1-7, Acts 3-19, 1 Thessalonians 5-1. That word, the time, refers specifically to the next stage in God's redemptive activity. And, Paul, or, and John says that this time is near. It's a reference not to the speed in which these things will be accomplished, but to the proximity in time. They are near. It emphasizes imminence. The reason why this book is so needed and the reason why this book can bring blessing is because the time is near. This raises the doctrine of imminence. And certainly that is a doctrine which is both much misunderstood and much maligned today. In fact, in many of the eschatological debates the common uh, debate revolves around dismissing, for example, dispensationalism, that it's goofy, non-academic, etc., and so forth. Most of the time, it has nothing to do with dispensationalism. Many times, it has to do with a discomfort with the doctrine of imminency. We want to bank on the fact that we have a lot of years left. We want to live our lives not convicted that at any time everything could change dramatically. We don't like that. We love stability. We want to live our lives planning for the future 20, 30, 40 years ahead and to be comfortable in doing that. And so much of the debate in eschatology is discomfort with the reality that while we are to plan, we must also equally equally plan that those plans may never happen. That at any moment, the Lord can begin the next chapter, and we must be ready for that. The doctrine of imminency is a huge doctrine that is missing from much of our thinking, both at practical levels as well as theological. Well, as we close, let me give a few implications of this book and why it's important for us as we begin an in-depth study. First of all, appreciate this book as God's Word. It is God's Word. It comes from Him. There's no, there's no higher authority it could come from. It comes directly from Him. And we need to appreciate that fact as we approach it. Number two, realize that it was given to disclose, not conceal, 
knowledge. Many people treat the book of Revelation as if it was a veiling when the actual terminology is that it is an unveiling. It is a disclosure of knowledge. Number three, recognize that this book is written for believers, not for scholars or PhDs. It is written for everyday rank-and-file believers. That's why God gave it. Belongs in their hands. Number four, believe the promise it holds for those who study and apply it. It has a promise. And you will gain vitality in this life, blessedness in this life, if you apply this message the right way. Number five, grasp the urgency of its message, for the time is near. And again, as as we will discuss as we go through this, this doesn't remove from us the responsibility to plan well, to make right decisions. That's all part of it. But equally so, as we make long-term plans extending to to the end of our lives here, if the Lord gives us 80 years or more, we are equally to plan as if tomorrow or even today is the last And finally, tole lege is the Latin, take up and read. That was what Augustine heard in the garden when he was converted. He heard a voice of children playing on the other side of the wall, tole lege, take up and read. Let me apply that to the book of Revelation. I don't know that Augustine would have done that, but... um, I will, tole lege, take up and read, take up and read. And as you do, ask the Lord to give you understanding and blessedness. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that all things are in your hands. That history is indeed not a haphazard set of circumstances that reflect blind fate, but that everything has been planned by you as truly sovereign, and that includes the future. As we study this book, we pray it would bring comfort to our hearts that we would understand that everything from geopolitical issues to the very circumstances of our personal lives are not out of control, that we would see in this book the portrait of one who is sovereign and does all things justly, does all things wisely. We would also find conviction from this that life is but a vapor and that we must realize that the end is near and that we are not to cherish the things of this world as if they are the most permanent, most stable, most important, but instead have the right attitude toward these things and to find that wise balance between stewardship for the long run and readiness for the next moment. Do that work in our lives, we pray, for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.